0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Father, our hope and trust is in you, a Savior who cannot deny himself. We ask that you would speak to us through this song, that it would ring in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, it's a little bit of an Advent tradition to study songs during this season. If you went back to 2016, we went through the servant songs of Isaiah, these messianic songs about Jesus found in the Old Testament. And then the year after that, we turned to the Gospel of Luke, and we looked at all of the songs in Luke's Gospel. The birth narrative in Luke's Gospel is full of music, full of people singing. Mary, Zechariah, the angels, uh, very musical. But then the year after that, we did a non-musical Advent series. And then last year, we were going through Romans, and we just kept going through Romans. So this is a little bit of a return for us to this theme of Music, of of singing together. It's in this epistle, in 2 Timothy, that Paul encourages, or or, or models for Timothy and for us, the encouragement that that a good song can be. Paul believed in the value of music in the church. He's the one who encouraged the saints to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Remember, he does that in Ephesians 5.19, and then he does it again in Colossians, in Colossians 3.16. And the reason he does this is that when we, as he says, sing and make melody to the Lord in our hearts, what we're doing is letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That through that, that song, we are appropriating these words, these sacred words, and making them our own. We set them loose in our hearts. Now, the songs of Scripture are often deeply theological, kind of like old hymns. When you look at old hymns, it can be surprising like how much doctrine has been built into these hymns. And I'll admit, occasionally, when you look at those old hymns, it seems like the doctrine that was built into them was a lot more important than singability was to the people who wrote them. Right? We tend to like things simpler than they did. We find it easier to sing that way. But there's a long history of using music as a form of instruction. When you were a child in school, you probably learned songs that were meant to, to, to help you remember lessons. I know when I began to study Greek, I had a momentary regret for the first time and last time in my life that I'd never been in a fraternity. Because apparently everybody who was in fraternities and sororities learned a song that taught them the Greek alphabet. And I struggled to remember the order of the words in the Greek alphabet. But if you had learned that song, just like learning your ABCs, it would be difficult to forget because the music kind of ingrained it in your mind. Or if you want like a much worse example, in the 1960s war movie, The Dirty Dozen, When these former criminals who've been turned into a crack commando team are studying for their raid on the Nazi compound, they learn their mission by learning a rhyming chant so that each step of the mission they can recite back so that when they're in action, they will remember what they're supposed to do. Now, this didactic use of song is really helpful. It's really helpful to ingrain things in your memory But that's not the kind of song that Paul quotes to Timothy here. The kind of song that Paul quotes isn't merely didactic. It is theological, but it's not just instructional. There's more to it than that. This is what uh, scholars will refer to as a a martyr song or a martyr hymn. So this is a song that people sang when they were persecuted, when their lives were Were under threat. It was a song that was intended to give them uh, hope and also determination in the face of their martyrdom. Now, you probably know this already, but just in case, I'll remind you, in Greek, the word martyr doesn't mean what it means in English. All of us are martyrs in the New Testament because to be a martyr is to be a witness. Martyr is witness in Greek. And all of us are called to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. But when you do that, you can face persecution and you can face death. And that's why the word martyr changed in its meaning and came to mean not just witness, but one who is put to death or made to suffer because of their testimony to the truth. And these words that we read here were written to encourage those who face death. Now imagine if you were facing death. Imagine if, if the world was against you and, and was coming at you. Like What kind of song could you sing that would stir you, that would inspire you, that would give you kind of a commitment to keep going and keep testifying to the truth? You've heard me quote Jules Michelet before, talking about the history of the Reformation, but there's this line where he describes the ministry of Geneva that always sticks in my head. It has to do with martyrdom. He says, if there be any need for martyrs in Europe, the need of a man to be burned or broken upon the wheel, this man is in Geneva ready to go with the singing of psalms. When we were looking at the psalms earlier in the year, that's one of the things I don't know if I, I mentioned this or not, but, but if you ask, like, what were the martyr songs of the Reformation? They were the Psalms. These were the words on the lips of the martyrs as they suffered for their faith. To be a good martyr song, it needs to be more than just instructional. It needs to be something you can cling to in what seems like the darkest hour. So Paul gives us some words, not the whole song. He's quoting just a part of the song, maybe the, the, the refrain if you will, he cites this and he says this saying is trustworthy as so he introduces it. He says in, in Greek, pistos halagas. pistos halagos, the saying is trustworthy. Now you should recognize some of those words. The halagos part is familiar from John's prologue. Uh, ha just means the, logos or logos, logos is word. In the beginning was halagas. In the beginning was the word. Now, that term, lagos is, is like a lot of words in English, flexible. So it might mean the word, but it could also mean like a word or a, a saying, as it does here. A teaching, for example. So it is a teaching or a saying, and pistas means faithful. To believe or to have faith is pistoa. Like, it's the same idea of faithfulness or reliability or, as it's translated here, trustworthiness. So, literally, Paul introduces these words by saying, faithful is the word. Faithful is the word or trustworthy is the saying. And then he quotes it. He uses that same turn of phrase in First 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, the saying is Trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What's the significance of introducing the words in this way? Well, he's giving us words to cling to. These are words to hold on to. These are words to bury in your heart, so that when you're tried, they will come to your lips. They are faithful words in that sense. They are trustworthy words in that sense. That in your most difficult hour, these words are faithful. These words will speak to you. And the reason why he's quoting these words is that Paul himself faces exactly that kind of life or death trial. If you look a little bit earlier in the text, the words that come before this, he's facing the consequences of his bearing witness. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul is suffering. He's bound like a criminal. He's facing death. He's enduring. And he's doing it, he says, for the sake of... Of Christ's elect for the chosen people, those who must hear the true gospel, it must reach their ears. And any suffering that he must endure for that to happen is worth it. It's worth it. That suffering is completely justified. If he loses his life, it's worth it for the sake of the gospel. He is facing opposition, he says, because of two theological truths that he wants Timothy to remember. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Resurrection and incarnation are those two things. Remember that he is the one risen from the dead, that he is God, like life after death. Remember, though, that he is the offspring of David, that he is human that he is fully man. Remember who Jesus is. Keep those things pure and close to your hearts. Why? Why would Paul cling to the gospel even at the cost of death? Why would he be willing to sacrifice everything over theological points, over being able to share Jesus with people? He tells us, because the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. A spiritual wisdom often comes to us in the form of paradox. Ideas that are hard to understand how they go together, how they don't contradict one another. And perhaps the greatest paradox is that we must die in order to live in greek this line reads and again as always i just want to say this isn't what it would sound like with a fluent greek speaker this is just me talking but it sounds something like i gar sunapathemen kai suzesumen it's a much simpler term in the greek than it is in the english you can see the words on the front of your order of worship if you look at the front of your order of worship, this is pistas halagas there. That's the saying is faithful. And then here, you get the first line of this song that we're looking at this morning. "A gar sunapathenomen, kai So there are really just two verbs there and some connecting words between them that we'll take a look at. So that word you can see... I know it looks like something like yap, but it's gar in Greek, and that just means for, and it introduces the phrase. It's, it's that the saying is trustworthy for, but in Greek word order, you flip things at the beginning so it looks like it's part of the quote, but it's really not. So the actual quote is just that I, which just means if, and then we've got another word. It looks probably to you like it's X-A-I, but it's, it's chi, there, and that is a conjunction that just means also. So, if this, then also that. So, if we have died with him, and that's just one word, sunapathenomen, and then Kai also suzesomen, we will live with him. So, both of the verbs begin with the same prefix, which is sin, so... Something we have still in English, S-Y-N, like synthesis, that sort of thing. It just means with, with, or together, something like that. And then the root of the verbs are thanatos, which means death, and zue, which means life. So literally, if we have died together, also we will live together. That's the paradox, uh, the French novelist Balzac wrote a wonderful short novel called Old Goriot*, and in, w- in one of the, the chapters, a young man who's a minor character in that book is posed with a dilemma. He's asked, would you be willing to let a stranger on the other side of the world die so that you could make your fortune and be happy? And that's the dilemma he has to struggle with. Would it be okay with him for someone else to suffer and die, someone he never knows and he never has to see the suffering, would that be okay if, as a result, he would become rich and happy? And that dilemma embodies a classic struggle that that we still wrestle with. Are we willing to live at the expense of other people? Are we willing to live at the expense of their suffering? Or how much of other people's suffering will we tolerate for our own happiness? Let's call this the dilemma of consumption, that, that we want to have a good life, but we would not like to think that our good life comes at the expense of other people, or at least not too much at the expense of other people. We want to have nice things, but we don't want our nice things to be made by people who are suffering and and in slavery and bondage. That's a dilemma that, that you can relate to. Right, I want life, but not at any cost. Like I want a good life, but I want other people also to be moderately happy. And so moral people today often look for uh, ethical ways of consuming so that we don't uh, victimize others too much in the pursuit of a good life. In fact, when I checked my mail yesterday, I, I got a... a catalog here that is full of products that you can buy. There's sweaters and backpacks and jewelry and all sorts of good stuff, sunglasses, and these are all products you can buy, it says in the front, to make the world better together. If you buy stuff from this catalog, you will make the world better because, as it says in the back, how we spend matters, The idea is that if you buy from these ethical brands, where they care where stuff comes from, how things are made and who makes them, that the conditions are fair, that the materials are ethically sourced, that sort of thing, you can enjoy the life that you want to live, but at the same time benefit other people, or at least not victimize them so much. I'm sure the people who put this catalog together would hate for me to refer to it this way, but this is what we called in an earlier time, trickle-down economics, that you can spend the money that you need to spend to make you happy, but in the meantime, you can take care of other people as well, Uh, which I think is is a good thing to think about. But I want you to recognize that the paradox we're wrestling with here, that's not it. The paradox, the, the dilemma that so many of us wrestle with in life, that's not the dilemma that Paul is talking about here. Paul doesn't say that the path of life is not to, uh, like, like you try to minimize the cost to others. The path to a good life is to, to, to not hurt other people too much. Instead, here, the path of life is to embrace the cost to yourself. We must die in order to live. In order to live, it's not a question then of, of how to live in a way that gives you, let's say, the least harmful footprint. Instead, the problem of how to live, to live as we're called to live, necessitates death. It necessitates taking the suffering, taking the hardship onto ourselves. Instead of being satisfied to say, no one has to die so that I may live, which you might think of as a consumer's virtue, Spiritual wisdom says, I must die in order to live. To obtain what is truly most valuable, we must sacrifice what seems to be of most value. That's how it is that Paul can say truly. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows that he must die so that he might live. That spiritual wisdom is foolishness to those who do not know Christ. If you think that this life is all there is, then why would you sacrifice it for anything? Or why would you be willing to be satisfied living something less than your best life if this life is all there is? If you believe that this life is all there is, then this kind of suffering and self-sacrifice would seem pointless. And you'd be right. It would be pointless in a sense because the only death that leads to life is to die with Christ. Yes, we must die in order to live, but the only death that leads to life is to die with Christ. And here we have to think about the importance of sin. I don't mean the importance of sin. I mean the importance of S-Y-N, that prefix that we talked about earlier. Because it is only death that leads to life if we die with Christ. If we have died with him, the song says, we will also live with him. Just as Christ died and was resurrected, those who die with Christ will live with him. When we went through Romans, we saw this in Romans 6. Paul says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. strange or unusual thing for Paul to be saying to Timothy, Paul has already told us this in Romans 6, that in order to live, we must die. If we want to live, we must die with Christ. Now, that death in Christ is a complicated idea. It has a little bit of an already not yet to it because Paul talks about being uh, dead with Christ in the future, but also in the presence, right? So there's a, a dying with Christ and a, a living with Christ that is certainly physical so that when we die with Christ, Paul has in mind something like martyrdom, something like physical death, a willingness to even die for the sake of the gospel, knowing that just as Christ died and was raised, that we who die with Christ will be raised again. So physical death and physical resurrection. And that's the, the eschatological part of the song, the looking forward to the future. And you can understand why that would put resolve in the heart of a martyr to sing these words. You're threatening me with death, but I know that if I have died with Christ, then I will live with him. So what threat? Does martyrdom hold for me? That's the idea. But to die with Christ and to live with him for Paul also has a this life significance to it as well. When he talks about our freedom from sin, he says we must be dead to sin and alive to Christ in that passage that we just read. So there is, even stopping short of physical death, there is a death that occurs in our lives as a result of the gospel. And it's a good death because it is a death that frees us from the grip of sin. Again, this turns upside down our view of what death is and its power. The martyrs of the ancient church could go to their graves fearlessly because they had come to see death the way Paul sees it, not the way human beings tend to see it not as the end, but as a portal into the life to come, the life in Christ that was promised to us. That little word, sin, with, emphasizes something profound, and it is participation. In death, in suffering, in hardship, we participate in the death in the suffering, and the hardship of Christ. That death, that hardship, that suffering draws us closer to him. Paul talks about his own sufferings as a way for him to participate in that work of Christ. It's not that the work of Christ is somehow unfinished, that Jesus suffered and died, but now there's going to need to be a lot more suffering and death to sort of pay the total bill. He doesn't mean that that he participates in the atonement through suffering and death. What he means is he participates in the experience of Christ, in the union with Christ. He comes to understand more fully who Christ is and who he is in Christ. That's the participation that I'm talking about. As Paul clings to the reality of the incarnation and the resurrection, he does so because both of those things point to Our participation with Christ and his participation with us. He became one of us. He suffered and died for us so that we might live with him. Now, what does this have to do with Advent? Advent, of course, is a season of longing, anticipation. We are looking forward to the coming of Christ. Originally, the the events that we meditate on are, are like moments of anticipation of Christ's first coming, but we reflect on those as a kind of metaphor, as a window to think about his second coming when he comes again. And so our anticipation is real. It just has a slightly different object, but it's still anticipation of the coming of Christ. A season of longing like this is, in a sense, a season of dying. Because when you have to wait patiently for something, a lot of things fall by the wayside. Enduring patiently over time teaches you the value of things, and it shows you what things you thought were of ultimate value but turn out to be transitory. Over time, as you wait, you discover that the things that you thought you could purchase and they would make you happy, do not have the power to do that. And that if you pursue that path, you'll have to keep pursuing it over and over and over again. This time of waiting is sanctifying in that sense. Because the longer we wait, the more we focus on what it is we're actually waiting for. What happens to us as we wait, we die. We die to self. As we wait and we wait and we long for the coming of Christ, self is minimized and Christ is larger. We die to expectation. We die to all our little private hopes of what Jesus will do for me, and we start focusing on what Jesus wants and the will of Christ. As we wait, we, notice the quotes, we resign ourselves. As we wait, we long to settle, to resign ourselves to God's plan and God's timing. We let go of the control that we would like to have over those things. where We would like to show God where he needs to show up and when. Over time of waiting, we learn that's in God's hands, not ours. And all of that is a kind of dying. It's a kind of, of letting go. A kind of reconciling ourselves to God's sovereignty. But with that dying comes assurance. The song sings, if we do this, we are doing it with Christ. If we are doing this with Christ, then we will also do life with him as well. If we die with him, then we will also live with him. In the moment of martyrdom, as you sing those words, you might think the focus is on death, but it's not. The focus is on life. The focus is on living with him. Paul's not the only apostle to give encouragement to martyrs. Peter, if you recall, when we worked through Peter's epistles, Peter has a, a very uh, heartfelt focus on on those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he gives good encouragement to those whose witness leads to martyrdom. He says, Despite everything, resist him, resist Satan, be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So as you wait, as you learn patience, keep resisting, keep fighting the good fight. Even though you're weary, don't give up. Keep pushing back, keep holding fast to the faith. Remember, Peter says, that you're not alone. That you're going through this accompanied by this worldwide family of faith who is enduring with you in Christ. And remember that God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you by his power. If you remember that, then you can suffer patiently. As Christians have for time immemorial, knowing that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Death has nothing to make us fear. If we die with him, we will live with him when he comes again. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org.